The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Over the weekend, President Trump and President Xi Jinping of China got together and agreed to have a ceasefire of sorts, at least not escalating the tariff talk any further while they continue to negotiate. But the real question is, what actually got done? And here to answer that question for us is Bill Rhodes, banker to the world. That is his book, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. He's President and Chief Executive Officer of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, a uh, longtime top banker at Citi group has been deeply entrenched in a lot of the political quagmires around the world over decades. Bill, so nice to have you here. So what actually got done at the G20 meetings over the weekend? Not a lot in the sense of China and the United States. What uh, President Trump and Xi Jinping agreed to do is to continue talking. Uh, you still have the 25% on the $250 billion, uh, of Chinese exports, uh, uh, here, uh, they didn't touch the 300 to 350 billion. They pushed it off. It was like kicking the can down the road, except for one thing. And in that sense, Xi Jinping came out the winner because uh, President Trump agreed to uh, to back off somewhat on Huawei, which has irritated Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio, uh, two of his supporters, Republicans in the Senate. Uh, not clear to what extent that is. He's playing it down. The Chinese are playing it up. Uh, so we'll we'll have to see. But basically, we've been stumped at so-called 90 percent completion for the last, uh, I'd say, four months. Uh, big issues, as I always said uh, uh, on uh, this program, intellectual property enforcement. And the other thing is opening up on an equal basis to uh, to American uh, uh, business and investment, but particularly in the financial sector, but just in general in China. And, of course, the Chinese want to keep supporting Xi Jinping, in particular, their state-owned enterprises. And that's a mistake because a lot of those state-owned enterprises are inefficient and should be closed down, as should a lot of the small, smaller uh, banks in uh, Northeast Asia, where we, uh, in Northeast China, uh, where we just saw Boshang Bank go under. So I think that uh, Xi Jinping has a lot to uh, consider with his own economy. But if you have to say there's a winner in this, uh, depending on what happens in Huawei, it's he, not Trump. All right. So kicking the can down the road at the G20, maybe a little bit of a, 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 a net gain uh, for China's rights to Huawei. The president then moved on to Korea and actually had a historic meeting in North Korea. Again, what's your takeaway from that issue? Well, again, I think this is a big propaganda victory for uh, uh, for the leader of uh, <clears throat> uh, Kim Jong-un of uh, North Korea. Uh, because, as you know, the last uh, session that they had uh, didn't work out very well uh, in uh, in Vietnam, and uh, they they walked away from the uh, from the table there, and so I think that uh, 
this was a big victory and a propaganda victory for uh, Kim Jong-un, although not much in, in a sense was accomplished except each of their calling uh, themselves their best friends. Uh, the, the North Koreans continue apparently to build up their nuclear arsenal. They continue to have uh, tests of short-term missiles, not intercontinental missiles, but it's not clear that we've gained very much from all of this except for one big photo op. Well, you know, I want to push back a little bit on the idea that President Trump uh, just totally gave in with the Huawei issue and it was a total China win. I'm just wondering, we're seeing certainly the Nasdaq leading the charge today with gains. People expect that U.S. companies will actually win from this, that they'll actually continue being able to ship goods to Huawei in the meantime. Why is this a big win for China when U.S. companies are benefiting? Well, you've got to take a look at the larger picture because uh, if we're really concerned about security, intellectual property, then we should be be concerned about this. Short term for a number of of companies uh, that sell to Huawei, that's good news. But overall, and which is a problem that was mentioned by Marco Rubio and, and Lindsey Graham, is are we concerned about the longer term 5G and uh, security uh, side of, of Huawei? Because look what we're doing. We're telling all our ally, allies not to deal with Huawei, and then we back off. So as usual, our allies are confused as to what our policies are or are not. And I think one of the big mistakes that this administration's made was not to mobilize the Europeans in our, uh, in our negotiations with China in the sense of adding more weight to that. Uh, and so we decided to go it alone. We have a great negotiator, Lighthizer. Uh, the question are, is, are we going to stick to uh, our guns? Obviously, the stock market likes it short term, but you have to wonder where this is going to lead uh, longer term. I guess the, the bottom, bottom line is, we kicked the can down the road, China and the U.S. What is your belief as to what kind of trade deal ultimately may be achieved between the U.S. and China? Well, I think right now, although they claim they've done 90 percent, they're still far apart on intellectual property and enforcement and also the, uh, the whole question of state-owned enterprises. At the end of the day, both China and the United States need a deal. China does because... Uh, they still haven't resolved the shadow banking system. As I mentioned, a lot of their smaller uh, banks in, in uh, northeast China, municipal and provincial banks, are basically bankrupt. Uh, they are supporting a lot of uh, state-owned enterprises should be closed down. And frankly, the growth is slowing. And a lot of the Chinese continue to move their money out. And this concerns the People's Bank of China, who keeps pushing money into the system to keep growth above 6%. And what's now an added aggravation to Xi Jinping, apart from all of the points we're talking about, is he's got some some sort of an uprising in Hong Kong. And people in Hong Kong say it's it's like a mini Tiananmen Square. And he's got to be very careful how he handles that, uh, because the last thing they want is for businesses to shift to Singapore or elsewhere, because the heart and soul of Hong Kong is a financial system which is based on the rule of law. So Carrie Lam really put her foot into it, whether she was ordered to by Beijing or she did it on her own and Beijing approved, not clear. But this is a real thorn in in their side because remember they're saying to Taiwan, look, if you come with us and reincorporate, we're gonna give you all the freedoms we gave Hong Kong. Right. Uh, And so this is the anniversary of the turnover 
and you see what's going on with the demonstrations. And what is it, two weeks ago they had two million people on the street, a population of seven million. So he's got that to deal with. So China's got it, 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 its problems, and here in the United States, I think we, we, we need a deal, too, in the sense of uh, uh, we can't fight the world on trade. And our, our, our partners, I think, in Europe uh, have problems with their own economy, and the EU is moving ahead. They just signed an agreement with Mercosur, right. which is 780 million people, and they just did a deal with Vietnam. So while we're fooling around, we can't even get the, uh, the old NAFTA approved. The EU is moving ahead doing all these things. And the Japanese, with the, the residue of TPP, are moving ahead there. So I think we're kind of on the sidelines here. Yeah. Well, and I want to pick up on a point that you mentioned about the shadow banking system in China expanding. And in the U.S., we have the Federal Reserve poised to cut interest rates uh, due to the slowdown that some say has already happened as a result of the existing trade tensions. I'm just wondering, what does this do to markets when you have an expansion of leverage at this point in the business cycle worldwide? I mean, we're seeing this certainly in the United States. We're seeing this in China and even the European Union union where you have Mario Draghi ready to uh, cut interest rates further? Well, I think it's a little scary in the sense that uh, the ECB doesn't have much ammunition. They claim they do, but I don't really think they do. And here in the United States, we got to be careful also, because when the next one hits us, recession, uh, we've got to be able to have the firepower to fight it. And that's a real concern. And, of course, with all this new liquidity coming on top of the old liquidity in the markets and the search and reach for yield, uh, it can be kind of scary for where we're going to be next year. So interesting. So, Bill, I just want to switch gears quickly. We've got a couple of minutes left. I asked you off air in that when you joined Citibank in 1957, what was your first job? And you told me they shipped you off to Venezuela. So you clearly have strong ties to Venezuela can you give us kind of what you think the latest is going on down in Venezuela? I think it's sort of a standoff because three months ago, the Trump administration thought that by putting on sanctions on the oil exports, that they could cause the fall of Maduro and the army uh, would, and the armed forces would turn against them. That has not happened. And as you'll notice, not much is being said about Venezuela and the White House, uh, whereas for two months, uh, the drums were beating every day. So now they're trying to work on negotiations, but the situation there is just getting worse. You have between four and five million uh, refugees out of a population of 30 million. Um, I was down talking to the president of Ecuador uh, a month and a half ago uh, because he was interested in, in some ideas I had about dealing with the refugees because most of the refugees start in Colombia, go through Ecuador, uh, and then down to Peru, Chile, and Argentina. But in a, pop, a small population, which Ecuador has, uh, they have percentage-wise the largest because they have almost 300,000 refugees. And these people don't have the education, the health services, or anything else. It's the biggest uh, refugee uh, humanitarian crisis in the, in the history of Latin America. Uh, and, uh, and it, you know, it, it's almost criminal that this guy Maduro is still, is still in power. But, uh, you know, the governments of Colombia and Ecuador would like to do something, but they're looking for the leadership in the United States. And I think that uh, the White House has been silent on Venezuela recently. Uh, you constantly hear people like Marco Rubio talking it up uh, down in Florida. But uh, 
I think it's a very, very difficult situation. Of course, Putin has his hands in that too because of Rosneft. And the Chinese just want to deal. When I was there in December, they, they told me they don't care which government they deal with. They just want to preserve their assets. But they are backing Russia on this. And Cuba's got 20,000, as we say in Spanish, efectivos, uh, whether it be um, in the security services, in, uh, advising the armed forces, teachers, some doctors, etc. And they depend on Venezuela because the Venezuelans sell them cut-rate oil. And so you have this Russian-Chinese... Cuban, somewhat, if you want to put in Nicaragua coalition down there, all of which are very anti-American. So I've always felt that we, we haven't taken the Venezuelan situation seriously. Yeah. When Condi Rice, who's a friend, was the national security advisor, I had lunch with her one day, and I was trying to tell her, take Chavez seriously. And at that point, she was more interested, which I understand, in what was going on in the Middle East. But we haven't taken... Venezuela seriously enough, and I think it is a big mistake politically, strategically, and certainly on the humanitarian side. Bill Rhodes, thank you so much for being with us and for uh, the work that you do. Bill Rhodes, President and Chief Executive Officer at William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, also a senior advisor to the Hudson Institute, uh, as well as author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. Well, WTI crude oil is up nearly 40% from its December low. That amid uh, the OPEC talks, which are underway right now in Vienna. To get the latest on all things global oil and OPEC, we turn to our next guest, Jason Schenker. Jason is president of Prestige Economics. He's also chairman of the Futurist Institute and a Bloomberg opinion contributor. Check out Jason's new book, The Future of Energy. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. What are you, what are your expectations and what do you think we will get out of these OPEC two-day meetings? Well, I think the most important thing here is you're going to see production levels remain constrained. You're going to see a rollover of the decision uh, moving forward. And a lot of that's informed by what's going on in the global economy, which is a slowdown. One thing that I find interesting is there's this push-pull dynamic that as OPEC uh, tries to support values in crude by cutting production, President Trump is saying, we want to make sure oil prices are low enough so that it doesn't cause pain at the pump. And I'm wondering uh, how that dynamic is going to play into OPEC's decisions. Well, you know, the summer driving season in the U.S. is one of the biggest drivers of oil prices globally. It's why prices tend to rally in the first and early parts of the second quarter of the year as refineries are ramping up and uh, hedgers are making sure that if they have uh, exposures that they're, they're making sure they've got those locked in. But when the summer driving season ends, a lot of that disappears. So the summer driving season will effectively end here in three weeks on the NYMEX when we roll the contract to September. So if you want to see lower prices on the NYMEX, that's probably going to happen on its own because the refiners aren't buying in order to hedge that summer driving season because we're trading September crude and the driving season's effectively over. So, you know, those dynamics of, well, we want the prices to be low at the pump for the consumer. Well, the, the truth is, is that consumer is what drives the prices up you know, fundamentally in a global demand market. So, Jason, you mentioned earlier slowing uh, global demand. How do you think OPEC and Russia are adjusting production in what it does appear to be slowing global demand? 
Well, you know, they've been really on top of the downside risk about trade. Uh, you know, I've been pretty critical of how the IMF and the Fed last year handled the risks, the downside risk to growth from trade. OPEC, on the other hand, uh, was a bit more aggressive about the downside risks posed by uh, the U.S.-China trade war. And what we've seen is they've been much more uh, aggressive in lowering their global growth forecast and the PMIs out in the last 24 hours out of China, the U.S. and, and Europe, the sum of those is below 150. And that means that globally manufacturing is contracting right now. That's bearish for crude. OPEC knows that. Uh, they've been on top of expecting some weaker growth. That's part of the reason they're going to likely roll over this uh, this constrained production decision. Although, how much is this also due to the uh, increasing and in record production out of the U.S. shale patch? I mean, that's been the swing production factor here, uh, and that's been accelerating. I mean, is that more of the story than even the demand side at, at this point? No, I don't think so. And the reason is, is that commodities like oil, they're bought, not sold. And the reason oil prices rose so much in the first you know, four or five months of the year was because there was a big ramp up to what is right now the biggest summer driving season in U.S. history because, you know, people have jobs with the unemployment rate, right? 3.6% wages are up 3.1% year on year. People have jobs, people have money, they're out there driving, right? That's a fundamental demand factor. The shell stuff was going on throughout all of that. But what's happened in the last few months is that China's manufacturing is contracting, Europe's manufacturing is contracting, U.S. manufacturing is the ISM has slowed a lot. It's still expanding, but it's quite tepid. That's been a big change in the last few months, and that's fundamental. And so that, that, that reduced demand with the increased supply, that's the problem. And when we go into the fall after the driving season ends, there's more downside risk. I mean, look at what gave us a pop in oil over the last couple of weeks, right? We had geopolitical risk with Iran. We had a contract rule to August. We had OPEC finally setting a meeting, uh, you know, and you've got the summer driving season and you had a dovish Fed. Think about all that price bullish stuff. And we're still nowhere near we were where we were for prices just a few months ago. We're still off those levels. So that's because of this weak global growth situation. Jason Schenker, thank you so much for being with us. Jason Schenker is president of Prestige Economics, also chair of the Futurist Institute and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, author of a new book, The Future of Energy. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Traders are spending an increasing amount of time trying to parse through the rhetoric in Washington, D.C. and beyond as 2020 presidential elections heat up. Joining us now to talk about what we've seen out of the Democrats last week at the two debates, as well as what to expect coming uh, in the upcoming weeks, is Lonnie Chen, David and Diane Steffi, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, also director of domestic policy studies and lecturer in the public policy program at Stanford University. Uh, Lonnie also is a former advisor to the 
Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney campaigns. So uh, given your uh, deep understanding and background working with Republican campaigns, Lonnie, uh, do you have a sense of which candidate uh, will be the toughest for President Trump to beat based on what we saw last week at the Democratic debates? Well, I think the conventional wisdom going into the debates was that Joe Biden was going to be the most difficult challenge for President Trump. And that still might be the case, given his positioning on issues. But certainly, I think his performance in the debate uh, on the second evening exposed some some serious weaknesses in terms of uh, his vulnerability on some issues within the Democratic primary electorate. So putting Biden aside for a moment... Um, I think Kamala Harris had a very strong performance that people, uh, Republican or Democrat, believe put her in a good position to contest the election against President Trump. And also others who have made noise, but maybe we haven't gotten as much exposure to people like Pete Buttigieg, uh, for example, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He might present a sort of generational contrast to the president. So it'll be interesting to see that the conventional wisdom about Biden having been uh, the top candidate, I think, was was called into question last week. And we'll we'll, we'll have to, to uh, see how all that develops as the campaign goes on. Lonnie, what are the issues that you believe uh, the Democratic candidate, whoever that may be, should really focus on uh, to defeat President Trump? Well, you know, the challenge is going to be that the the biggest issue traditionally for presidential elections has been the strength of the economy and the state of the economy. And it's going to be tough if the economy continues to perform reasonably well for Democrats to take that issue head on. Uh, That having been said, if the economy begins to slow, Democrats will certainly try to seize on the economy as being the the, the, the top issue. Now, I would have said health care was an issue where Democrats had a potential advantage. However, what you'll notice is in that debate last week, many Democrats went pretty far to the left in embracing um, Medicare for all, single-payer type solutions, and or complementary free health care for undocumented immigrants. And I think those issues... Uh, it could potentially harm them in a general election if that posture continues. Lonnie, one big question, especially uh, given your intimate connection with Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio came out, Senator Rubio, uh, with some harsh criticism of President Trump on the Huawei deal, uh, the fact that he was loosening criticisms about national security after the G20 meetings. And I'm wondering how much dissent, how much pushback there is within the Republican Party against some of President Trump's policies, particularly on trade, given that they kind of run counter to the Republican viewpoint uh, when it comes to free trade. Well, I I think that the criticism of the president has become much more attenuated and tempered here over the years. But certainly there is significant concern regarding um, loosening the the, um, restrictions on Huawei, which is perceived to be a national security issue, not as much a trade issue. Not just from Marco Rubio, by the way. You've got Tom Cotton and other Republicans who've expressed concerns about allowing Huawei to do more business in one form or another in the United States. And of course, the Huawei issue is multidimensional, as I'm sure you've covered. It's not just a question of whether they're allowed to sell their technology in the U.S., but in particular, the president talked about loosening uh, restrictions on U.S. suppliers working with Huawei, which he's arguing is separate and apart from the national security issue. So I, I do think within Republican circles, there will continue to be muted opposition to the president and what he's trying to do 
with respect to Huawei. Trade generally, I would say that you've still got some Republicans who take that pretty strong free trade point of view. I'm thinking of people like Rob Portman of Ohio, my old boss, Mitt Romney, who's now the U.S. Senator from Utah, and folks like Rubio, who have been very much embracing this free trade position. But, but I think they'll pick their spots. I don't think you'll see them come out guns blazing for the president. I do think that they will sort of say, look, here are certain times and situations when the president might uh, try to do something differently or when the critique might be uh, less strident and more targeted. So, Lonnie, do you think ultimately the Democratic Party will put up a centrist candidate to uh, go against President Trump? Or do you think the I guess the, the, the pull to the left will be too great and you might get someone like us, you know, someone a little bit more on the progressive side? Well, I, you know, the, the traditional um, reality of primaries is that they do pull parties to the polls. So the Republicans get pulled right. Democrats get pulled left. Uh, but, you know, Democrats do ultimately or have traditionally sort of fallen in line. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to see kind of how that goes. My sense at this point is that Democrats want someone who's perceived to be a fighter. They want someone who's a progressive. And that would suggest that they won't pick someone who is just sort of in the best position to beat Donald Trump. They're going to pick someone who they believe will, will, will take the fight to him, even if that means espousing positions that might be a little bit farther to the left. So I, I tend to think that these primary campaigns do polarize the parties more. And what we'll see is not a centrist coming out of this, but somebody who uh, probably is a little bit more uh, firm in their progressive views. So right now, understanding that it is very early in this 2020 campaign season, what is your uh, guess, your best guess as to the likelihood that President Trump is going to win re-election? I'd say he has good odds. I think that, that it looks like he is going to have a divided Democratic primary field for some time. Whoever the Democratic nominee is is going to come out of that process relatively bruised and battered. They're going to have to rehabilitate their image a little bit because these primaries do tend to get quite ugly and quite divisive. And as I said earlier, the economy really remains the top issue. And so long as economic performance overall remains pretty good, I think the president's in good shape. Now, obviously, lots of X factors here, lots of things that could turn things in a different direction, not the least of which is if Democrats manage to coalesce behind somebody who's relatively more moderate, relatively earlier in the process, that would certainly hurt the president. And if the economy takes a turn for the South, or frankly, if one of these geopolitical issues becomes more significant, those could be issues for the president. Lonnie Chen, thank you so much. Lonnie Chen is a David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, also a Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University. The G20 meeting and the subsequent ceasefire between Presidents Xi Jinping and Donald Trump certainly directing market action today. The Nasdaq rising 1.2 percent on the heels of that loose agreement. Joining us now to talk about the uh, implications here and what we've learned about both sides in this protracted trade dispute is Michael Herson, practice head for the China and Northeast Asia regions for Eurasia Group in New York. Michael, you worked previously at the U.S. 
U.S. Treasury Department uh, in Beijing. You have a very close and and uh, personal experience with negotiations such as these. So, given that, what is your perspective coming out of the G20 meetings over the weekend? What should we be talking about that we aren't? Well, I think what we should be talking about is just the fact that really the tough questions still lay ahead. Uh, what we saw coming out of the meeting is, as you said, it's a ceasefire. And it was really driven by the desire, both by President Trump and President Xi, to avoid the risks of further escalation. But it wasn't driven by a sense that the two sides have bridged the gap on the key issues remaining, on the trade dispute and uh, on the the path for, for Huawei going forward. So, um, it's it's a it's a pause. It's uh, it's it's positive, but um, really the tough questions still lay ahead, and it's going to be very important to see what happens both with trade talks and with Huawei in the weeks ahead to get any sense of whether or not this is sustainable or leads to an eventual deal. Michael, are you surprised at all that President Trump seemed to backtrack somewhat on the restrictions uh, placed on Huawei? We expected there to be some nod towards um, towards finding an off-ramp to Huawei, because otherwise I think it would have been very difficult for China to sit back, uh, to, to come back to the negotiating table. So I was a little surprised at how forward-leaning the president was, um, but I think overall we, we felt that, that there was going to have to be some indication for Beijing that, that Trump and the U.S. is willing to explore a way to, to modify treatment of Huawei, but really major questions unanswered in terms of how the U.S. expects to do that. And as, as I'm sure you've seen, there's been, um, there's been quite the blowback already in Congress uh, on a bipartisan basis from senators who, who view this as capitulation and uh, want to see the knives still out on Huawei. Michael, do you think that the U.S. has a coherent and uh, understandable desire for these trade discussions in terms of what they would like the end goal to be? It's a great question. There are different factions within the administration that have different goals in mind for for China. Some officials, I would say Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, uh, clearly want to deal and are worried about the impact that um, continued standoff or even escalation would have on U.S. economy, U.S. markets. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got officials like Peter Navarro, who uh, have very maximalist demands for a deal and would be perfectly happy with just keeping tariffs up on China, viewing that as something that throws sand in the gears of China's economy. They would like to see Huawei go down. Uh, and then you've got officials who are sort of in the middle, and I would put Robert Lighthizer, who's really the key figure here, the U.S. trade representative. He's somebody who has a tough views on China, will insist on a very strong deal, but all things equal as a pragmatist and somebody who eventually does want to arrive at a deal. And so those different factions balance out, and there are more. There's the national security and law enforcement types as well. Um, these different factions uh, do not necessarily come together in a coherent strategy. And that's why we've seen pivots and reversals and moves back and forth within the Trump administration. I don't I don't think this is going to be the last one. So, Michael, some critics are saying that what uh, President Trump and President Xi did this weekend was simply kick the can down the road. So I guess it kind of goes to the question of timing. Um, when do you expect, if at all, that the U.S. and China really get together and really get a real trade deal um, together. What's the timing on that? Well, I'll tell you, I, I think the big takeaway from this meeting is 
is the fact that you have a ceasefire, but also the fact that China agreed to resume purchases of U.S. agricultural goods. I don't think that those are necessarily going to be large in magnitude, but it's a clear sign that President Trump is trying to reduce one of the political vulnerabilities that he has faced with the standoff, which is the pain that U.S. farmers are experiencing. So what what I think it leads to is really the fact that both sides may be comfortable with the status quo. In other words, keeping current tariffs in place, avoiding the risks of further escalation, but not making the kind of hard political decisions to actually arrive at a trade deal. So we could very well see this status quo continue through the remainder of the year and through the remainder of this presidential term, because as President Trump gets closer to Election Day, I think he's going to be more and more reluctant to have to defend a complicated trade deal uh, on the campaign trail. So we just may see this this current um, this current situation, this status quo, continue for the next year plus. Michael Herson, thank you so much. Uh, Michael is practice head for China and Northeast Asia at the Eurasia Group, uh, based in New York City. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.